Thank you, musicians. Thank you, choir, for the wonderful song selection and gets our hearts focused on grace. Um, it is my pleasure to deliver the message uh, today as we'll be studying God's Word. And uh, hopefully, after today, you won't be like, goodness, when's Isaac coming back? <laughs> but Isaac and his family are uh, coming back from vacation this week, and we're glad that they had to have that time. Uh, but I am also glad that I get to deliver God's truth to us today. And I want to tell you a story. A long time ago, um, in India, there was a seven-year-old girl, and her name was Prina. Now, Prina was abandoned by her mom to serve as a prostitute in a Hindu cult temple back in that day. Prina, seeking to flee from that harsh environment, she ran away from the temple. She ran away back to her mom, but her mom abandoned her again back to that temple. The Hindu temple sought to deter her from doing this. They didn't want her to run away again, so they applied hot irons to Prina's hands. Seven-year-old girl. Prina ran away again. But this time, instead of finding rescue from her birth mom, she found the caring, loving rescue from a 34-year-old Irish woman in India by the name of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael left Ireland in 1895, I believe, to go to India, and her heart was burdened for the people of India, and she witnessed, she came to learn more about the, the troubles they were under, the horrific uh, uh, lifestyle that many of these children were leading, so she and others set up a place of refuge for these young Hindu children, a place where they could be fed, they could be cared for, they could receive instruction and education. It was wonderful. It was a time of uh, her sacrificing her life, and God uh, was able to do wonderful things through Amy Carmichael and her fellow ministers. Baptisms were administered, souls were saved, kids were rescued, Churches were planted. All of this was happening because of uh, her obedience. Amy Carmichael never went back home to Ireland. She never asked for monetary support. And she said uh, these words, as you can read on the screen, uh, she said this. The next slide. She said, If I have not compassion on my fellow servant, even as my Lord had pity on me, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Amy Carmichael understood how Christ's love motivates us to a life of obedience. And service and sacrifice and submission doesn't come naturally to us. We avoid it like the plague. We, uh, we put it off like the de dentist appointment. We treat it as if it's like an interruption to our day. We don't want to be bothered by this service and this sacrifice for others. However, what I want us to see today as we look through Scripture, and there's no one set text that we're looking at, um, so I've got all the Scripture on, on, or most of it on the slides, so you can just follow along with the slides. But I want us to see how when we eagerly surrender and present our lives of service to God, we and others around us will experience profound joy. Now let's start back at Genesis which we're studying right now uh, from the pulpit. But when we look at Genesis, just a few highlighted themes is we see God created beauty 
and order from darkness and chaos. We see God desiring fellowship with his creation. We see sin coming in, disrupting that fellowship. We see that sinful cycle being repeated through Adam and Eve, through Noah and the flood, through the Tower of Babel, and through so many other sources. We see what God has created good, humanity messed up. Sin is the problem, and sin is repeating this cycle of brokenness, of uh, broken fellowship with God, but yet God, God seeks to continue to send in rescue, to send in a redeemer, to send in a way to restore that fellowship. And we see that repeated throughout Scripture. A common theme that we see is uh, a stubborn and rebellious heart in humanity that rejects God's will for their life and insists upon calling right and wrong in their own viewpoint or insist upon living life on their own terms or in their own way. However, God issues a promise of hope. As we see this through uh, Genesis, we see this guy named Abraham, and God makes a promise to Abraham uh, that he will uh, one day fulfill. He will send blessings through the descendants of Abraham's family, and he would send a Messiah through the descendants of Abraham's family. And we see that history as true. As we read in Matthew 1.1, Matthew records, records for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ in which he says um, the ge- genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is God's promise of hope fulfilled. But Jesus the Messiah wouldn't arrive on um, planet Earth until long after the descendants of Abraham. And between that time period, between Abraham and Jesus the Messiah's uh, coming to Earth, we see God providing men and women of faith to represent Him and to be, uh, to verbally deliver His will to people and also to physically deliver His people from oppression that goes against the will of God. Now, let's talk about God's will here for a second. I want you to think about God's will as a blessing and a means to a blessing. First of all, it's a blessing. When you think about God's will, and when you say that phrase, which we say a lot in church or in church circles, God's will, it's a blessing. What God wants is a restored relationship with Him. He wants us to see uh, Him as the one true king, which he is, the unconditional loving father, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is perfect in every way. We want to have that relationship with him. But God's will is also that we love one another. This is God's will. It's a blessing. And also, um, this is what we see God offering to us. This blessing, this restored relationship with him and with others is open to anyone. Anyone can have this, and it's made possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, also, God's will is also a means to that blessing. Think about this. God's will is also, it represents God's desire of fellowship that He wants with us, but also the means by which we can and we should attain that fellowship. It's the standard that God has Uh, set before us that we might fashion our lives so that we can relate well with him god has already determined what is right and wrong and what brings joy and life to his children this is god's will it's a means to the blessing 
So that's a little bit about uh, God's will. When you think about the end of Genesis, continuing on in the Genesis story, we see God working through a life of the young man named Joseph. Y'all remember the story of Joseph and how his jealous brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him, but instead of murdering their son Joseph, they sold him into slavery. Joseph, at no fault of his own, was dumped into heavy opposition to the will of God. He was put in a situation which seemed hopeless, yet his story took a turn for the better. As you read in Genesis, you see that Joseph uh, began to rise in power and he began to get favor in the eyes of uh, the Egyptian pharaoh. And what seemed like a pointless tragedy turned out to be all part of God's divine plan. Joseph knew this, and uh, he summed it up well in Genesis 50, 20, which is where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. He's talking to his brothers here. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So look at that verse there. Two things I want to talk about. God meant it. God meant for Joseph to be thrown into that realm of evil oppression, of uncomfortable life, of sin, where he was surrounded by sin. And it wasn't by any fault of his own. This did not in any means make God an evil God. God has, in fact, it makes him even more uh, awesome when you think that God can use and did use the evil things of the world to bring out a good plan. It shows his sovereignty and it shows his foreknowledge. So God, the evil oppression that Joseph encountered was part of God's plan. So that's the first part. But then look at why. Why did God do this? Um, It was that many people should be kept alive. Joseph suffered for the good of others. Was, it, was this reason that God wanted uh, to Joseph to go through all this and, and to be brought out of you know, the Egyptian slavery into a place of prominence? Was it, was it for Joseph to have some comfortable life? Did, Joseph, did God just pick Joseph to, like, out of random, be like, hey, I'm going to select you and I'm just going to give you a comfortable life. I'm going to make you rise to power so you can be comfortable, so you can have lots of rich, you can, riches, you can be famous. No, that is totally not why God chose Joseph for this part. Joseph, or God used Joseph to suffer for the good of others so that many people should be kept alive. Joseph remained a faithful servant during his times of suffering so that others could have life. Life. Think about this. Life. And all, whenever you hear the word life in the Bible, think about the fullness of what that means. Not just physical heartbeat life, but even more abundant life, which Jesus talks about in 10.10, John 10.10. Life. That sounds a lot like someone else we read in the Bible, doesn't it? Who else do you think about who remained a faithful servant to God through times of suffering so that others could have life? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We think about Jesus, who also remained faithful during suffering so that others may have life. Think about Peter, who was an eyewitness of Christ's suffering and how Christ both dealt with suffering and service with joy. 
Uh, look at this verse from 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Serve as one who serves by the strength of God, the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering and service is not pointless oppression for people who are captivated by the kingdom of God. For those who see themselves as called into the king's service, they see themselves and their lives as a means by which others are brought to life and God is glorified. I'll say that again. For those who see themselves as called to the kingdoms of service, they see their lives as a means by which others are brought to life and God is glorified. That explains a lot of some of the valleys that we walk through and why we're walking through those valleys. So moving on from Genesis uh, and Joseph's life to Exodus. Exodus picks up right where Joseph or right where Genesis leaves off and we read the sobering words in Exodus 1.8 which says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. In other words... Things for the people of God are not looking too good. God was restoring uh, things through Joseph, and then there came a new guy, a new king to power, a new Pharaoh. And he did not know Joseph, and he did not know the will of God for his people. And we see fierce oppression begin again. The cycle of evil oppression begins again. And this new Pharaoh was so evil that he began he issued a decree that every Hebrew male baby be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. He wanted to wipe out God's people. Talk about evil oppression. Now this Pharaoh, a little side topic here, this Pharaoh believed that a person's value was based upon their usefulness to him. I want you to think about that because it's very convicting. This Pharaoh thought that a person's worth was divine by their usefulness to him. I want to bring this up because this belief is still believed and adhered to by many people today. And I would be naive to think that there's not maybe someone in this room who still puts this belief into their own personal lives. This belief is clearly in opposition to God's will. By God's common grace, he has given every human being intrinsic value God created male and female in his image. And what did he call them? Very good. He said, you are very good. We are not valuable based upon what we can do, but we are valuable based on what God has done. We are valuable based on who we are. And as Ephesians 2.10 tells us, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
people of God, you have intrinsic value, not just instrumental value. And we should treat each other with this common belief that we have intrinsic value. When we base our value of others based on their instrumental usefulness to us, we become dangerously similar to this Pharaoh. And our mindset links a lot like his. And we might take actions that are similar to his. This sounds like another guy in history uh, who believed that a, a people group's value was only based on their usefulness to him. You know, think about a person like Adolf Hitler who followed that same belief system. Dangerous ideas have dangerous consequences. And here we see uh, this world of oppression again uh, repeating in history through God's people. So what does God do in this? In this response to the Pharaoh's evil and this uh, evil oppression in Egypt, God, because of his love, because of his promises, and because of his protection, he called yet another person to redeem these people from the tyranny of sin. This person, as we read about in Exodus, was Moses. You remember him. And throughout history, we see people, we see God calling people out of sin into service. And the Israelites, in this case, uh, you might consider that they were called out of slavery into slavery, but a different kind of slavery, a different kind that, that doesn't bring back uh, painful memories or, or hard-to-swallow uh, facts. So Israel was chosen to be a servant nation. God rescued his oppressed people from Egyptian slavery, and at this time, Egypt was one of the most powerful civilizations and empires of the world. Now, the fact that God is rescuing his people from this evil empire tells us two things. One, it tells us that he's more powerful than any evil empire we can face today. He's more powerful than anything. God is omnipotent. Second of all, um, you got to look at what this shows about God's heart and his plan. Um, at this time, many, and you read about it in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, you read how this people, after being rescued from slavery, some of them expected this rescue was for a nice, cush, comfortable life. And when they didn't get what they expected, they started complaining. Was God's reason for rescuing the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery to lead them to a comfortable, easygoing life? I think not. I think he had a much fuller, deeper reason for that. And God used their lives in slavery to show them what their life was like apart from the goodness of God. Think about it. If you can put yourself in their shoes, imagine yourself in that Egyptian slavery. You realize how horrible it was. So God allowed them for that time period to endure that so they could realize this is what life is like without God. This is what life is like under the bondage of the slavery of sin and sinful oppression. So that's first. And then second of all, God redeemed them from that slavery to show them how goodness, joy, love, and purpose, and peace are maximized when we offer ourselves to a new type of slavery. We offer ourselves as slaves to God. Deuteronomy 4.20 uh, tells us uh, 
what God's greater picture here. Uh, In verse 12, it says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire and declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So we we see here God rescuing his people, but he's giving them a standard by which to live, the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, are not that easy to keep, right? It's not an easygoing, comfortable life. It's a holy pursuit of, or it's a pursuit of righteousness. So God gives them something. And then verse 420, Deuteronomy 420 says, But the Lord has taken you out, taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are to this day. Remember Peter? who walked and talked with Jesus, Peter understood this. And Peter understood his and our intrinsic value at his, as it is based in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Doesn't that sound like what we read in Deuteronomy? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous life, light. Excuse me. So just as Israel was rescued from slavery to be a servant nation, Christians today are rescued from the oppression of sin to joyful service out of darkness into marvelous light. This is the joy. This is the contrast we see from evil oppression to joyful service. And when we think about the term slave, I want us to think about a slave of God as being one who surrendered in joyful service to their loving father, their good master. The bad news for the Israelites back then is is that they failed. They couldn't keep what God commanded them to do. Thankfully, the good news for us is we have what they don't have, what they didn't have. We have the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We have the power of the Holy Spirit guiding us and directing us and rebuking us and, and walking us or helping us walk in a life of grateful service to our Lord. Our service is to offer life to others. What a joy. We who have been redeemed get to point people to our Redeemer. What a joy, what a privilege when we think about that. We get to proclaim God's excellencies, to glorify God in all we say and do, to bring up God in our everyday language. When you go to lunch today and you have dinner Uh, or lunch with someone, maybe you're going out with somebody else in this room, talk about the goodness of God with them. As you're going to Thanksgiving meals with your family members, bring up God's work and God's hope that you have in your everyday language. Say God bless you to the person, who, the total stranger that you see today. We get to do this. We have been given hope. We have been given rescue for everyone who is trusted alone in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls, they have eternal hope which cannot be broken. And we get to share that with others. We get to point them to our Redeemer. From slavery to slavery, from evil oppression to joyful service, God redeems his people. Paul understood that we all, under, that we all serve either something or someone. The Apostle Paul picked up on this idea of slavery often in his writings. And he said that we either serve sin or we serve righteousness. In Romans 6, he states this. I think I have this for you. Yes. 
He states, he states, you are slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the, from, excuse me, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, from slavery to slavery. Are you getting this concept, this idea? Or being rescued from the evil oppression of sin to joyful service with God. Paul embraced this idea so much. If you're familiar with his writings in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and Titus 1, 1, Paul introduces himself as a servant of God. Other translations, in your, maybe in your Bible, it might have uh, Paul a bondservant or God, of God. Uh, even another one says Paul a slave of God. Now that word in the Greek is doulos. And that is a similar, similar, excuse me, similar <laughs> idea that we read about in Deuteronomy 3.15, which re- re- reads this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty and outstretched arm. At least five times in Deuteronomy, this phrase is repeated where God says, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And whenever, whenever something's repeated, we need to pay attention. Why is this repeated? Well, it's like a parent having to tell their child something over and over again. God is wanting to get through this message. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. God, remem- God wanted them to remember how bad their slavery experience was under evil oppression so that they would not revert back to it. Yet we see that that's what some of the crazy ideas that they were talking to each other. Oh my goodness, I wish, I wish we were back in Egypt under that slavery. I wish we could, have, we could have fish we were in there. And all we're eating here is this lousy manna. What is God doing to us? And they were complaining and complaining. God knew their hearts. God knew that they would want to resort to this foolish oppression of sin. So he reminded them, remember you were once slaves in Egypt, in that horrible place. Do you remember what they tried to do to your babies? Remember how they tried to kill them all off by throwing them in the Nile so that they would drown? Don't forget this. Don't forget your past that was bound by the slavery of sin. I think we too can apply that in our own lives. And also, God, by repeating this phrase, he wanted to, them to remember, hey, how'd you get out of that slavery? Any, any miracles happen along the way? Was, was, was there any like divine intervention at play here? Yes. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt and God got you out of it. God wants us too to remember that he is our redeemer. And through him, we have redemption, restoration. We have rescue. He is our hope. And Jesus is God's promise of hope fulfilled. We can see how easily this applies in our life today. Today, we are not under Egyptian slavery, but we do face the evil oppression of sin in our daily lives. Now, uh, as we see this, we see the oppressor, the evil oppressor is Satan, and the problem is sin. And every day we have to go and fight in this battle. Under Egyptian slavery, uh, the Israelites were oppressed, they were devalued. They were robbed of their joy. They felt hopeless. 
They question their purpose. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that time period and that, and that persecution as an, Egypt, as an Israelite in, under Egyptian power? They needed someone to rescue them. Likewise, we can say the same thing about ourselves today. Under the tyranny of sin, we are oppressed. We are devalued. We are robbed of our joy. We feel hopeless and we question our purpose and we too need someone to rescue us. Jesus offers rescue from the oppression of sin. Jesus offers freedom from slavery to slavery, but a different kind of slavery. Now the title slave of God is not something that you need to be ashamed of. It's something to be esteemed. It's not a a title of humiliation. It's a title of humility. And as I was preparing this service or this sermon, I was thinking, man, should I use the word slave? I mean, that has some horrible connotations to it. But you think about it, those connotations are only horrible because of the evil oppression that they were un that uh, we think of when we think of slavery because of the sinful masters that they had. But when we call ourselves a slave of God, that is in no way an evil master. That is the good master. That is a loving father. That is, that is unmatched power, un, unbridled uh, grace. That is uh, our loving father. So we need to embrace the term slave of God and not like kind of like shy away from it. Because when you think about who your master is as God Almighty, it should make you readily want to surrender into the king's service and to be captivated by the kingdom of God. Many people will call themselves a Christian. But how many will consider and view themselves as a slave of God? Think about how that affects your lives, what you call yourself or how you think about your relationship to God. There's many ways that God is described through Scripture. He's, de- uh, uh, he's described as a creator. He's described as a righteous judge. Jesus is described as a good shepherd. How do you think about yourself? Do you think about yourselves as a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a Christian? I go to church every once in a while. Think about this title. Think about embracing the, the identity of a slave of God, a joyful service, not, not of one of humiliation, but one of humility, and not one of, to be ashamed of, but one to be esteemed. It's a banner to wave with dignity, with value, with joy. What if I told you that Jesus embraced the term slave? Would it make you more eager to em- embrace that term yourself? Well, he did. Jesus' life was the embodiment of a servant. He said himself that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Mark 10, 45. And of Jesus, it was rightly said that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. That's Philippians 2, 7. Why would Jesus do this? Why would the King of Kings, the great I Am, reduce himself to the lowly position, lowly position of a servant or of a slave. Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 
chapter 12, it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy. Jesus did this for our good and for God's glory. Likewise, in view of God's mercy, we too should live our lives as a living sacrifice for the good of others and for the glory of God. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Probably, and I probably say it all the time, it's my favorite parable uh, because it really helps me understand how good and how gracious our father is. Remember the son who uh, took his inheritance early, got all his inheritance, and went out, uh, abandoned the family, went out and squandered all of his life in pursuit of joy and happiness from the best of whatever the world could offer. He went off and tried to do things on his own. And after realizing that this was an empty pursuit, and after feeling hopeless and pointless in this pursuit, he came to the conclusion that it would be better for him to go back to his father as a slave and to serve in the house of his father. Now, how does his father respond to this? As Jesus tells him, as Jesus tells this parable, he says that the father celebrated. He welcomed his rebellious, once rebellious son back home, but now a repentant son who's coming back home Makes me think of that verse, out of darkness into marvelous light. We see this going on. We see the goodness of God and the joy of the Father who is thankful to have this restored relationship that, is, that includes service along with it. I love it. I love that uh, parable, and I love how that points us to our uh, true satisfaction in life. We can seek to serve uh, we can chase after a lot of stuff. We can chase after money and pleasure and fame and comfortability and a lot of these things. But ultimately, they will leave us feeling hopeless, pointless, and regretful. At that point, when you hit rock bottom, and hopefully we don't have to wait till we get to that point of rock bottomness, turn to God, realize that only he can bring joy and satisfaction. And realize it's better to be a slave in God's house than to pursue all of what this world has to offer. Uh, there's a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Has anybody ever read anything by C.S. Lewis? Show your hands if you have. Okay. I have not read this book, but I did uh, read a book that quoted this uh, scripture. And actually, my daughter gave me this book to read. Isn't it awesome when you're your children are encouraging you in the faith. Um, uh, it took her like, you know, a week to read it. It's been like two months, and I've, <laughs> I'm still on chapter six out of like 13. But anyway, there, there's a, a part. This book is referring to The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, it's kind of like a, fic- it's a fictional story about, um, and one part of it is where tourists or temporary tourists are given a chance to go to heaven and observe what's going on in heaven. So they're on the bus and they're, or whatever, and they're being led by the tour guide. And the, this tourist in the book is looking and he's observing like what seems to be like this great celebration. There's like a feast going on. There's music going on. There's dancing going on. And it's all in honor of this. Uh, it looks like there's this one central character, a female, who is uh, being honored and celebrated here 
in this heavenly situation. Now this person, this tourist, thinks it might be the Virgin Mary. And this is how the, uh, the story goes. I've got it on the screen for you. And he says, is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said the tour guide. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Isn't that so true? Fame on earth and fame in heaven are two quite different things. Many, of, many people who are famous on planet earth will be forgotten in heaven. Many of the things that we seek to bring ourselves accolades and pride and prestige on earth will be worthless in heaven. Sin has warped our thinking to make us think that greatness is equated with power, with wealth, or with followers. Didn't Jesus say that the one who is least among you will be the greatest and that the leader is the one who serves? He said that in Luke 9 and Luke 22. We see here two contrasts, two roads. We see slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness. We see what are we going to surrender ourselves to. Think about some real world examples in your life. I want you, everybody right now, think about one person. Is there one person that you can think of who has faithfully offered their lives in sacrifice to God and to others, to glorify God and to love others? I'm sure you can. Can you think of anybody from Wake Chapel? I'm sure you can. I think of people like Jim Bunker. How David and Ross and, and Faye and I would be sitting in the office and staff meeting and we'd be saying, all right, well, we got this thing going on the Family Life Center. Who's going to set up the tables and chairs? And here comes Jim Bunker in our office. Hey, I got everything set up in the, <laughs> in the Family Life Center. Nobody asked him to do it. He just did it. He always, all by himself. Can you imagine that? And he would read the bulletin and see what needed to be done and see what was going on, and he'd come up and serve. I think of Thurston Adcock, who would watch and see what the youth ministry was doing, and he would say, he would show up in his coveralls, and he'd say, all right, Seth, let's go take the vans uh, to Stevenson's Auto and get them worked on before your trips. I think of Marlene, uh, excuse me, Marlene. I think of you, Marlene Bunker. <laughs> but I also think of Marilyn McLean. Who do you think of? We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. From people like Joseph, like Moses, Jesus, the apostles, ultimately Jesus by, by all means, to the people that you were thinking of, to the people that you were thinking of who uh, caught this notion that it is better to be a slave in the house of God than to pursue all the rest of what this world has to offer. We have motivations. We have examples that God has put before us in our lives to see that we should embrace this idea from slavery to slavery, how God redeems his people from evil oppression to joyful service. 
we see, and we should remember, just like God reminded the Israelites, remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. We should see in our own lives, remember. You remember that slave, that that sin that held you captive, that robbed you of your joy, that sought to devalue you, that made you full of regret? Forget that. Don't go chasing back after it. God offers us freedom from that. Sin is a heavy burden, and if not dealt with, it will crush you. Accept Jesus' offer today of freedom, to lift that burden from you today. Sin, though attractive today, will be a regret tomorrow. And a life lived in slavery to sin is a very scary thought. God offers freedom from sin. In Galatians 5, we read this. We read, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you catch how this common theme throughout Scripture is talking about from slavery to slavery, from evil oppression of sin to joyful service of others and of God? From slavery to slavery, God redeems his people from evil oppression to joyful service. We all serve a master, whether it's money, whether it's fame, whether it's comfortability, whatever it is, we all serve something. All these masters keep us locked up if they're not God. All these other fates, uh, fake masters or evil masters keep, uh, keep us locked up under the evil oppression of sin. God knows that. God loves you and God offers escape from that. God wants what's good for us. It is his will that we have that. This, and the escape that he offers is faith in Jesus Christ. The key to the door to unlock the cage that you're locked in is faith. And the gate is Jesus. That's our ticket out of the slavery of sinful oppression. Only Jesus offers forgiveness for your sinful soul, and only Jesus offers eternal hope. And it's only by the grace of Jesus that you can lay your head down at night with a clean conscience. Empty gods leave you feeling empty. It's foolish to keep serving them. Stop giving them second chances. They only let you down. Serve Jesus instead. If you're going to be a servant, if you're going to be a slave, choose wisely. And serve him with joy. You get to serve Jesus. You get to. You don't have to. You get to. It's joyful. You've been redeemed. You've been set free from all this evil oppression of sin so that you get to point others to your Redeemer. Live your life in response to God's grace with joy and joyful service. Uh, Wave that banner, slave of God. Wave it with dignity, with privilege. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to cherish and to... uh, Be eager to represent. And you, like your Savior Jesus, who for the joy set before you can approach all of life's trials and know that there is a purpose in that trial for the good of humanity and for the glory of God. Now, if you're 
sitting in the room right now and you want to do something about this truth, do it. Talk about it. I would love to talk to you. David, would you love to talk to anybody about that? He says yes. So. And there's probably somebody sitting next to you that would love to talk to you about that as well too. Don't hide it in. If God has brought a change to your mind or to your heart, talk about it. Search his word for truth. Make it public. Don't hide it in. Change happens when you start talking about it. Come talk to me uh, after service. I'll be here. Let's pray. Our Lord, I thank you that you eagerly pursue us with your grace. I thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin. I thank you that you offer us hope and victory from the evil oppression of sin through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you glory. We praise the name of Jesus Christ when we think about how the riches and the fullness of his love who, set, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for our sake, for each one of us. He knows us each by name. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in the room who needs to make a change in their life and accept uh, you as their good master, Lord, I pray that that would happen today in the next five minutes. Lord, I pray that they would be eager to follow you with joy. And for those of us who are already following you and just needed some encouragement today, I pray that we would work together as a team to encourage one another and to spur one another on to love and good works. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for your church and how you are continuing to build your kingdom and spread your good news. And thank you for giving us a chance to be part of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.